Good morning. God is good. And all the time. God is good. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you for joining us for our final Bible study uh, in this subject of this magnificent salvation. We've had four previous ones. I think they're posted on the website. So if you want to go back and pick those up, you are welcome to do that. I wasn't sure we'd be able to do this today. So again, I'm indebted to uh, our folks who minister to us through media and communication. And I'm in the room with three of my favorite people. So uh, shout out to, to Gary and Miguel and Alan who are helping us today. Couldn't do this without these guys. Uh, we're going to um, get through this difficult time as God leads us every day. We're getting closer to the ending of this uh, time of separation from each other, but uh, we're doing the right thing uh, by separating for this season uh, out of an abundance of compassion for others. Uh, we want to save as many lives as we can. So I often begin this study. If you're new with us today, I often begin with a quote from uh, Ralph West's grandmother. She used to say, I'd rather be in the word of God than in heaven and earth. Because heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of our God will endure forever. We're going to come today to the passage of Scripture, which actually teaches about that. Just to sort of review and recap, we've thought about salvation and the various images that Scripture uses for salvation. We know the one about justification very well, but we've thought about redemption and adoption and reconciliation. We thought last time or time before last about sanctification, how God is making us holy. And then the last time we met about the assurance of our salvation. And now we come to what we call the consummation of salvation. If you think about the little rubric of justification, sanctification, glorification, uh, we've been justified by grace through faith. We are being sanctified. We are being saved right now as God continues to conform us to the image of his son. But our ultimate hope, what Titus calls our glorious hope, is that we will one day be glorified, that we will be made like Christ in all his fullness. I think this must be what the Apostle Paul had in mind when in Colossians chapter 3 at the beginning, when he says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I remember as a young pastor, a little poem that said, every morning, lean your elbows for a little while on the windowsill of heaven. Take a long look at heaven and then with the vision strong in your heart, turn strong to meet your day. I'm grateful for a book and I commend it to you. Some of you have many questions about heaven and uh, Randy Alcorn, Alcorn has written a book called Heaven. I think it's a helpful book. He tries from the scripture to answer many of our questions about what heaven will be like. And I find it to be a helpful book. Uh, in the opening chapters, he says that every culture, 
think about every culture has some conception of heaven. So if you could imagine uh, the Polynesian peoples envisioned an island to their west, which was a perfect island and a perfect place. And our Native Americans uh, had this vision that their spirits would hunt the spirits of the buffaloes. Almost every culture in history has had some vision of a better place. Solomon said, God has placed eternity in our hearts. God has put eternity in the hearts of humankind. So we're fascinated with heaven. Just a few years ago, there were some popular stories about people who believed that they had gone to heaven and come back. Don Piper had a picture of being in heaven for 90 minutes and he saw all these unspeakable things. Remember, he had a car accident over in East Texas and, and there he had a vision and he came back and talked about what kinds of songs we will sing in heaven. And it made quite a stir when he said that we would be singing the old hymns in heaven. Well, that's a picture of heaven. And then more recently, the story of Colton Burpo and uh, his little story about when he went to heaven and his family, when he was little, uh, he had a tragic a medical event in which he was lost for a season and then they revived him and he tells about that and that book has become a movie and many of you have shared those stories with me and they're fascinating stories no doubt uh, they're interesting stories but remember too that they are not scripture but in the scriptures we have stories of people who got a glimpse of God remember in Exodus 33 Moses had a, a, he asked God, I want to see your face. And God said, you can't see my face and live. But God passes by him in all of his glory. And then also the Apostle Paul in that second letter to the Corinthians, he talks about being taken up to the highest heaven. And there he gets a picture of God. And we wonder, what did Paul see? And he said, these things are almost unspeakable. I can't communicate them in human terms. The most uh, obvious of these pictures of heaven comes from the book of Revelation. Remember when John is on the island of Patmos, he's been exiled there and it's on the Lord's day. So on a Sunday, on a day that all Christians in those early centuries devoted themselves to worship, he has a vision there on that island and he sees heaven opened up and he sees Jesus walking among the lampstands, among the churches. And Jesus is so vivid and so brilliant as the Pantocrator, as the ruler of all, that John just falls on his face and Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and delivers the messages to the churches in chapters 2 and chapter 3. And Jesus comes. And so if you said to John, to John, so what is heaven really about? Is it about the streets of gold or is it about the mansions? What is heaven really about? John could have answered in a word, Jesus. Heaven is about Jesus. So even at the great consummation of the ages, our concern is not going to be with what kind of wallpaper we have on our walls in our heavenly dwelling places. Instead, our fascination, our fixation, our fulfillment will be no one less, nothing less 
than Jesus himself. And we will see the great consummation of our salvation. So let me read some verses to you. You have your Bibles with you, I hope. Uh, And I want to read to you from Revelation chapters 21 and 22. These are the, the final chapters of the book of Revelation. As you turn to those passages, I remember a story of some young men who were playing basketball when they were in seminary and and there was a, a gentleman who was waiting there to close the doors and lock up when they left. He was the custodian at the, at the seminary. And uh, when the ball went out of bounds, one of the young uh, aspiring preachers ran out of bounds to pick up the ball and he couldn't help but notice that the janitor, the custodian, was reading from the Bible. And he was waiting for them to finish their game. And he said to him, so what are you reading in the Bible? And the custodian, who had probably seen generations of of seminary students play basketball in that same gymnasium, uh, that same family life center or life center, said to him, oh, I'm reading from the book of Revelation. And the seminary student who was taking a course in eschatology at the time, learning about Revelation, said, do you understand what you're reading? And the custodian said, yeah, I understand. He said, you understand the book of Revelation? The custodian said, I do understand the book of Revelation. And he said, really, tell me what it's about. And the custodian lowered the Bible and looked at the young seminary student in the eyes and said, it says we win in the end. Well, we do. And in these chapters, we learn just how true that summary. It's a good summary, isn't it, of the book of Revelation. We win in the end. This is the consummation of our magnificent salvation. So I read to you from, uh, from the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, and I'll start by reading verses 1 to 7. And wherever you are, just so that we can have continuity, we always do this when we study in these, uh, these winter Bible studies. If you'd like to stand where you are today in reverence for our God and His Word as He speaks to us, in Revelation chapter 21, Verse 1, this is what John writes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Then he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To those who are thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all this And I will be their God, and they will be my children, after he explains who will not be 
in the kingdom of heaven. He talks about the new Jerusalem, the bride. And I pick up again in verse 22 of Revelation 21. And he says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor, their glory into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, for only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the final verses of these of this last chapter he who testifies to these things says yes i am coming soon amen come lord jesus the grace of the lord jesus be with god's people amen so the book of revelation is a letter a book written to people who were enduring intense persecution and suffering. I've often said, as we've studied the book of Revelation together, it can't mean what it never meant. It can't mean what it never meant. Some people see it as a, a puzzle to be solved, and sometimes they take parts of the Bible, parts of the book of Revelation. Um, one way to understand the book of Revelation is, if you could imagine at some point in future history that somebody a thousand years from now found a newspaper from the United States. And in that newspaper, there was an elephant and a donkey, and the elephant and the donkey were fighting with each other. That person a thousand years from now might look at that and say, someday the donkeys and the elephants are going to fight with each other. They, they wouldn't understand what we understand, that it was really talking about the two political parties because they didn't have the frame of reference. The best frame of reference to study the book of Revelation is the first century world. The Roman Empire was beginning to persecute the Christians. They were struggling. Some of them were capitulating and beginning to worship the emperor instead of just worshiping Jesus. Some of them were tempted to give up. Some of them had grown lukewarm and apathetic in their faith. Some of them um, 
had completely turned away from the good news of the gospel. And Jesus comes to his churches to encourage them, to put courage in them, to come alongside them and say, I will give you strength to face persecution. One example in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, this seems appropriate for us these days. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. For I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. What is Jesus saying to those early believers in these churches in the first century? He's saying, you're gonna suffer in this world. You can take that to the bank. You can count on it. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The enemy is working in this. He's going to imprison you. Some of you may feel imprisoned as you're experiencing social distancing and not able to see everybody. I can't see my granddaughter Josie right now. I can't just go over to their house. We all have these distancings that are taking place right now. We may feel like, boy, I feel like I'm in jail right now. Well, just know this, the early believers actually were in jail. And in fact, many believers today around the world are experiencing intense persecution because of their faith and they're being thrown in jail. And listen to what he says. He says, so don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. It's true you're going to suffer. There is a period of time, though. It will come to an end. In this case, he says, you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. But listen to his encouragement to them. Be faithful. That's the call to the church in the first century. In the 21st century, as we face this unknown virus, something we've never really encountered before, we thought we had seen it all. Turns out we hadn't seen it all, had we? We could never have imagined a time when Christians couldn't gather together in churches in the United States of America. If somebody had told us someday you won't be able to go to church for a period of time, we would have said, oh, that's, that's impossible. I was reading Jim Dennison's article. I know he encourages many of you, and he was talking about a writer back in the early 2000s who wrote a book and predicted in the year 2020 that there would be a respiratory virus that would go around the earth and that none of the um, available treatments would be able to stop the virus from its spread. Uh, this writer died in 2013, but it turns out that the writer looks like a bit of a prophet right now because that's exactly what has happened. And in the middle of that, I just want to say, as, as Jesus said to the church, there's a duration, there's a period of time. And what are we supposed to do during this time? Stay away from each other. I know, I know. But even more important, be faithful. Be full of faith. Faith is greater than fear. Have you seen that equation? So um, fear knocked at the door. Faith answered the door. There was no one there. Faith is greater than fear. And, and the scripture says again and again, God has not given us the spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1, 7, but of power and of love and a sound mind or self-discipline. The spirit God has given us does not make us afraid, 
Uh, God doesn't want us to be afraid in this time, but he does want us to be faithful. And when we come to this end of the Bible, we discover that it encourages us to be faithful in these days. It turns out that there is an end of our suffering in this world, that in fact, the one thing that we seem to fear so much, dying, and in the case of, of COVID, in so many cases, Our loved ones are dying alone. Their families can't be with them. That's a frightening kind of thing, the thought of dying alone. Can I just say to you, no believer in Jesus Christ ever dies alone because Jesus himself is there with them. And he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So if we're locked in an intensive care room, that doesn't keep Jesus out, even if our own families can't come and be with us. But I want you to know something, that the world doesn't end with a whimper and a sigh, much less with a bang. The world, as it turns out, ends with a glorious trumpet sound of Jesus' return. And Jesus comes and Jesus makes all things new. So the world began in a garden, but it ends in a city. John saw heaven and he shares that vision with us. And what a glorious vision it is. So our magnificent salvation, by the way, some of you have that book. We have more copies of it. I'm glad to make a copy available to anybody who wants a copy of that book. It's not a great book, but it is my heart and my teaching. It's a doctrinal study of salvation and I'm not preaching the book itself, but we would love to make it available to you and you don't have to donate anything. That's a a change for TV preachers who say, for a donation, we'll give you the book. We don't want you, we don't need you to give us a donation, but I'd be glad to give you this book. We've got lots of copies of them, as Cindy can attest. And here's what I know for sure. Our magnificent salvation, which began with conviction of sin and the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, takes us through the process of sanctification where every day we are no longer conforming to the image of this world, but rather we're being transformed into the image of Christ. And when will it be complete? When will you and I finally be like Jesus? When will we be glorified like Jesus? When we see him face to face, John says in 1 John 3, we will be like him. We, isn't that a hopeful word? We will be like him. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Doesn't that give you hope? We're not always going to be this way. We're not always going to be subject to viruses. We're not always going to be subject to illnesses of various kinds. The Apostle Paul communicates it in that great eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Boy, this has meant so much to me in these days. And God is working all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Is that you? Do you love Jesus? Are you called according to his purpose? Here is hope. God's working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We're going to be made like Jesus. And then he says, and those he predestined, he also called. He called us to salvation. And those he called, he also justified. 
and those he justified. Listen, Paul puts it in the past tense. He also glorified. From God's point of view, the glorification is a fait accompli. It's an accomplished fact. It's going to happen. Nothing could ever stop it from happening. Everybody who's justified by grace through faith will go through a process of being sanctified. And when we see Jesus in all of his glory, can you imagine it? We will be glorified. We will be made new. Just so as Paul envisioned this in his letter to the Corinthians, that God would give us new glorified bodies in heaven. So one writer said, it's not that we're buried. It's more like we're planted like a seed so that we can come to life again. I think of a tombstone in a cemetery in New Orleans, Louisiana, and it has a single word on it, waiting. The body that was buried there is waiting to, for the redemption of all of creation. Absent from the body, that believer is already with the Lord. But this may come as a surprise to you, and, and this is, I think, part of what the scriptures teach us, that our loved ones who have gone on are already present with the Lord. But as the writer of Hebrews says at the end of chapter 11, at that great hall of fame of faith, he says, they're still waiting on us. The promise hasn't been completely fulfilled. It won't be completely fulfilled until Christ returns. And when Christ returns, then we will be gathered up together with those who are already with him. That's when we're all going to be changed. And so the promise is that our bodies are sown as perishable, but they will be raised imperishable. Think about how our bodies are frail and susceptible to illness and we've got all kinds of aches and pains and we grow older. But someday, like Jesus, we will be given new bodies. That's what we will be like. I know what you're thinking. I've heard it before. You're concerned, aren't you? Pastor, if we think too much about heaven, that won't be good for us. We could become so heavenly minded that we would be no earthly good. So I've been your pastor for almost 22 years now, and I love you so much that I think I can speak the truth to you in love. That's not a real worry for us, that we would be so heavenly minded that we would be no earthly good. C.S. Lewis said the people who do the most earthly good are precisely those who think the most about heaven. Because the more we focus on Jesus, the more we understand that you and I are agents of transformation in this broken world, that we're doing part of the work of setting things right in a broken world. And I'm not worried that you're going to be so heavenly minded that you become no earthly good. Can I be honest with you as your pastor? Because I'm speaking about me as, as well as about you. My greater concern is that we would be so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. So we want to fix our eyes on Jesus as the writer of Hebrews says, we want to set our hearts and our minds on things above, as Paul says to the church in Colossae. We want to focus on Jesus. So three points in this outline. At the consummation, this answers the question. Here are the three questions. Where will we be in the end? Where will we be? You ever wonder that? Where will we be in the end? Second question, who will be there? Third question, what will we do when we get there? What will we be doing in heaven for all of eternity? And these chapters that I've read to you answer those questions. Number one, where will we be in the end? At the consummation, God will recreate the universe. So 
21, verse 5, someday Jesus will make all things new. Listen closely. He will not make all new things. He will make all things new. So the, the prior heaven and earth pass away, but God makes a new heaven and a new earth. And I don't understand it completely, but I believe the things we do while we are here are contributing to that making of all things new, that what we do after we become believers really, really makes a difference. In fact, I believe Jesus is already making all things new. That's why Paul would say to the church in Corinth, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. So that begins at the moment when we choose to become followers of Jesus Christ. So what does he mean a new heaven and a new earth will be created? Look, I love the beautiful world we live in. I'm an outdoors person. Um, I, I love to be outside. I love to walk in Hershey Park. I walk and run in it uh, for many miles every week. I take my dogs out there. I try to get my wife and daughter to walk with me out there. It's kind of like a highway right now. There's a lot of people out there, more people than normal. But I'm grateful people are enjoying the beauty of our city. When I'm out there, I don't feel like I live in a city because there's a river that runs through it. I, well, it's a bayou, I know, but I walk along that bayou and I feel like Psalm 23 is fulfilled when it says uh, he leads me beside quiet waters. I know back in Harvey, it was a raging torrent and there were speedboats running up and down behind my backyard. But right now it's a it's a gentle, gentle uh, flowing of water uh, down uh, to uh, the the bay and to the Gulf. And I I love the beautiful world. I, I posted a picture last week of Glacier Park and and mountains there in in Montana. I was reminded when we went there last summer on my sabbatical how beautiful the mountains are. No wonder the psalmist said, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? We lift our eyes. You can't help but notice them. There are beautiful sunsets these days and the trees are all blossoming. True, they're releasing pollen that is making me a little bit allergic, but still I love the beauty of these these green trees. This is our Father's world. His hand, the wonders wrought. One little girl was walking with her dad at night looking up at all the stars. By the way, my friend Benton Reed has has posted some beautiful pictures of Orion and uh, and uh, the Cigar Nebula and different uh, constellations that God has made there on my Facebook page uh, as he has commented on them. He's taken these pictures from earth of the heavens. And this little girl is walking with her dad one night and she looks up at the stars and she says, Dad, if this side of heaven is so beautiful, what must the other side be? Imagine, I mean, our, our world has beauty in it. There's also, it's also, I understand, a broken world, but it's beautiful. So why make a new heaven and a new earth? Why not just do a, a big renovation project and, uh, and uh, just sort of clean it up and dust it off? Well, Jesus envisioned heaven and earth disappearing. We also hear this, by the way, in Matthew chapter 5 when he's talking about how the word of God will stand. Remember, I quoted from Isaiah, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will endure. Well, you hear it in in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, 
will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So we need a new heaven and earth because the old heaven and earth will pass away. Along with the beauty, there is this dark side which we are seeing now. God flooded the world once. We've been through floods here in Houston. We actually know what to do when it floods. Uh, we turn around and don't drown and we, uh, we get to higher ground. But can you imagine that this broken world will one day be replaced? Here's an analogy. Melanie and I bought a new Ford once and only once. Uh, we bought it brand new. It looked good. But for some reason, this beautiful green car, we thought it was beautiful. We love green. We thought this beautiful car was wonderful. But at about 50 miles per hour on the highway, it would just die. And uh, the power steering would go off and we would have to nurse it over to the side of the road. This went on for a couple of weeks. They tried a couple of repairs. And then one day they called me and they said, does your uh, car when you're inside it, does it have kind of a citrus kind of smell? And I said, yeah, it does. That's that's interesting. How did you know? They said, it's a lemon. Uh, bring it back and we will we will give you a, a brand new one. And the new one, interestingly, no citrus smell. It didn't die at 50 miles per hour on the freeway. It was a great thing. And uh, so they gave us a totally different car. They came to the conclusion, this one is going to get you hurt. It's, it's beyond our ability to fix. And it's a brand new car. And so we're going to give you another brand new car. And this one's going to be right. So our choir sang this song. It's one of my favorite songs. I think uh, Sky and Laurel uh, sang, the, the, uh, sang the first part and the, and the choir responded and the congregation joined them. It's Andrew Peterson's song and it's really popular right now. Michael W. Smith is singing it. Lots of people are singing this song right now. And I just want to, I could just say these words to you, but I'm going to sing them this morning because I really, really love this song. And uh, what we need you to do is just to, say, to sing wherever you are, we do, when I sing the line. So let me just sing it to you and just listen to the words. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you see the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark can't keep the light from shining through? We do. Do you wish that we could see it all made new? We do. This is the message of Revelation chapter 21. We feel the world is broken. We see the shadows deepen. But we know that all the dark can't keep the light from shining through. And honestly, are you with me? We wish that we could see it all made new. What will it be like? Well, the holy city will come down from heaven to earth. N.T. Wright has been helpful, I think, to the church in the last 10 years in pointing this out. Uh, he's got a book called Surprised by Hope, where he talks about heaven and about the future. And he does it, I think, in a different way than some of the writers of my childhood did. He doesn't speak so much about us escaping the world as he does about God creating a new world and how as Christians we are a part in continuity with that in trying to set things right in the world. Jerome Smith would say every time you pick up a piece of garbage, a piece of litter, you're, you're helping God's world to, to uh, be more beautiful. And N.T. Wright says it's interesting 
that the point of most of the preaching of my early years, as I remember it, was we got to get out of this bad world and get to heaven. But it's interesting, and it's, it's a subtle shift, but I want you to see this. The point of Revelation 21 is not that you and I go up to heaven. The point of Revelation 21 is that heaven comes down to the new earth. The holy city comes down from the sky, the heaven, down to the new earth that God has created. In a way, think about Genesis chapter 11. This is the reverse of the Tower of Babel. So remember in those chapters there in 9, 10, and 11, as the world's going from bad to worse and the fall and all that happened with Adam and Eve. And at Babel, humans pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps because we still think we can do that. We can fix it until we can't. We're self-made until our self-madeness fails us like it is right now. We're, we're independent. We don't even need God, the world says, until we run into a virus that we have no answer for. And at Babel, they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they tried to reach God. But in heaven, at the consummation, we don't work our way up to heaven, but heaven, the new Jerusalem comes down to us. Won't that be something to see that? You can read the John Jasper story at the end of my book. Uh, it's a little different in there. I've told this story, but I want to read it to you. And I recognize that it was told uh, by a friend of his in the dialect in which John Jasper preached back in the day. And it was at a funeral service. And he says about a sister named Mary Barnes who has died. He says she was different. She was washed in the blood of the lamb. Our sister Mary, goodbye. Your race is run, but your crown is sure. And then with his exceptional powers of description and drama, this pastor who was the pastor of Atlanta, Georgia, this preacher then picturesquely and eloquently proclaimed in his dialect these beautiful words. I often ask myself how I'd behave myself if I was to get to heaven. I tell you, I believe I'll just do the town. Walking and running all around to see the home which Jesus done built for his people. First of all, I'd go down and I'd see the river of life. And after that, I'd turn out and view the beauties of the city, the home of my father. I'd stroll up them avenues where the children of God dwell and view their mansions. Father Abraham, I'm sure he's got a great palace. And Moses, that escorted the children of Israel out of bondage, he must be powerfully set up being a man such as he is. And David, I'd like to see his home. And Paul, I want to see his mansion. And then I would cut round to the back streets and look for the little home where my Savior set my mother up. Look there. Mighty sweet house. Ain't it lovely? Look there. See that on the door. Hallelujah. It says, John Jasper. Too good for a poor sinner like me, but he built it for me, a turnkey job and mine forever. Oh, what it must be to be there. And now, friends, if you'll excuse me, I'll take a trip to the throne and see the king in his royal garments and just look at him for the first 10,000 years. Oh, what it must be to be there. Remember, this is not the present Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem. The present Jerusalem, as we know it, goes away with the old heavens and earth. But in continuity with that, 
God makes a new holy city and it comes down the spiral staircase of heaven all the way to earth. You know, my Melanie plays the piano. I went to Baylor thinking I needed to marry a girl who could play the piano because pastors needed wives who could play the piano. And I, I, I don't know how to say this, but I dated a lot of piano players and none of them, none of them was a love connection for me. And then I fell in love with Melanie over in the business school. She was an accountant in the making and I never asked her if she could play the piano. But I remember when I first went to her house to visit her mom and dad and meet them officially and and her mom uh, fed us supper and I was so nervous I couldn't eat. I just sat there and talked to them that night. I took a bite or two of my hamburger, but I didn't eat. Her mom thought I, I was gonna be skinny forever because I just didn't eat much. And then she led me into their formal living room in their little house in Temple, Texas. And she said, has she played the piano for you yet? And Melanie sat down at the keyboard. There was an organ. She played the piano and the organ. She'd been playing for her whole life. She had never mentioned this to me as we were falling in love together. And then her mom looked at her and said, play the holy city. And Melanie took out a well-worn piece of music and she began to play the holy city. And I suspect every time Melanie's mom came and we knew she was coming to worship with us at our little churches where I pastored for so many years, she would call and say, I want Melanie to play the holy city today for the offertory. And Melanie would play that. And, and I just thought about our Jewish friends who expressed their messianic hope. At the end of the Seder meal, they always say, we have a home. We just don't have a house to put it in yet. Maybe in the New Jerusalem next year, maybe next year in the New Jerusalem, Andrew Peterson again uh, has written a, a Christian song expressing our hope. When will we be in the New Jerusalem? Maybe next year. It's when our world is as broken as it is right now that we realize how desperately we need for the world to be made brand new. And we recognize that we need to be made brand new because at the consummation, as he describes it in verses three and four, God will reside with his people. Maybe the greatest loss in the fall of humankind, greater than anything else, the separation from God. True, we're subject to sickness now. True, we work by the sweat of our brow. There is pain in childbirth. Uh, true, there is conflict between men and women. All of that, a product of the fall. I believe at Pentecost, God began to change things. And, and at Pentecost, when he poured out his spirit, he began to make all things new. But the worst part of being evicted from Eden was that we no longer get to walk with God in the garden. We no longer get to talk with him in the cool of the day. And if we're blaming something or someone for this illness, maybe we should go back to the beginning. Wouldn't you wish that we could all, right when Adam and Eve are about to take a bite of that apple, say to them, don't do it. It's not worth it. Because there was no coronavirus in the Garden of Eden. There was no COVID-19. Now we get viruses so what is God's answer to this pervasive loneliness where we're separated from him? Listen to what he says there in verse three. God's dwelling place will be with the people. The word is interesting. It's the Greek word for tent. And then he goes on to say, and he will pitch his tent among us. God will dwell 
with people again. So in the Garden of Eden, God lived with Adam and Eve. All these years we've been separated. But in heaven, the best part of heaven, we'll have unhindered, unfettered access to the Father. We'll be able to walk with Him and talk with Him. The restoration will be complete. And the other place we see this word used, also written by the Apostle John, John the Elder, in John chapter 14, when he says, um, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, where he says uh, in that passage of Scripture, as he talks about this, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, pitched His tent among us. It's God's living place is going to be our living place, and we're all going to live together. And then in chapter 14, my Father's house has many rooms. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? So think of heaven as a prepared place for prepared people, as we said a couple of weeks ago in worship. And God will dwell with his people again. And it seems to me that the coronavirus reveals some of our worst fears because we don't like to be alone. And it's forcing us to socially distance. And those who contracted this virus now are separated from their own families. This is so painful. It reminds us of God looking at Adam when Adam was the only human and saying, not good. The whole creation is good, but not good for Adam to dwell alone. So we, we find this aloneness in this dreaded virus and we're separated. But God misses us as much as we miss him, even more. God himself will dwell with us and God will wipe all the tears from our eyes. You've often heard this world described as a, a veil, a veil of tears. We weep when we're born and we weep when we lose our loved ones. But John 11 shows us that Jesus wept. We don't weep alone. Recently, our sister Kay Medlin went home to be with the Lord. She has two sons, Scott and Steve. And oh, how they love their mom. And as Larry Bertrand and I listened to them tell the story of their mom, both of them have been in ministry, one a chaplain, the other a worship leader. And, and I used to run into Kay Medlin there in Hershey Park behind my house. She would be walking and I would be out there running or walking. And and, and one of her sons, Steve, said when she was so sick, he would sit beside her bed and he would wipe the tears from her eyes. And when his mother left this world, when she breathed her last, he said, my first thought was, now Jesus is wiping the tears from her eyes on the other side. And God destroys death. So there's the final enemy to be destroyed is death in chapter 20. And there's no more mourning and there's no more crying and there's no more pain. When did you first realize there was such a thing as death? Dallas Willard says he was two or three years old when his mother died up in Buffalo, Missouri. And he tried to climb into his mother's casket. He wanted to be with her so badly that was when he first realized there was death. I was five years old. I had a year of recognizing death. A goldfish was frozen in a bowl. A parakeet caught pneumonia and died. Uh, my alligator ran away. There was a lot of sorrow that year. My father was over in Thailand, so we couldn't see him. And then my grandmother had a grand mal seizure. And out of that seizure, she, um, we discovered she had melanoma cancer. It had metastasized in her brain. And 
And I remember the night of the viewing because my mom thought I was too young to come inside the funeral home. So she left me in the car with two of my older brothers. That doesn't sound like a safe thing to me at this point, but I guess it all turned out okay. But this is what I remember. It began to rain. And here I was sitting in the car with my brothers, our Ford. Anybody ever have a Ford Fairlane? Uh, that was my dad's Ford. And, um, and uh, it, it didn't smell like citrus either. But we were sitting in, his, in this beautiful navy blue Ford Fairlane. And mom and her siblings were inside at the viewing of my grandmother's body. And I remember it started to rain. And I watched the little streams of water. I still remember this, running down... Um, the front of the uh, of the car there and, and just looking out the windows and seeing out that front window of the car, these little rivulets, these little rivers of water and the rain outside mirrored the sadness in my soul and just understand that in heaven, the curse is reversed. There's no more mourning. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. These things have all been taken away. And Isaiah 53 comes true. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul envisions these new bodies. And in, in heaven, isn't this good news? We won't stub our toe. We won't get plantar's fasciitis anymore. We won't get a sniffle. I won't have allergies. The tree of life that is beside the river of life in heaven will not cause any allergies at all but its leaves will be used for healing. Oh, if we only had one of those leaves right now, they're desperately searching for a cure for the COVID virus, but I'm convinced that one leaf from the tree of life would wipe out this illness forever. There will be no sickness there, no more crying there, the old song says, no more dying there. Finally, point three, at the consummation, God will receive our worship. And so at the end of Revelation 21, he says, there's no temple in heaven. We won't have church buildings in heaven. Think about that. We won't need a steeple. We try, I think, looking at this capacious chapel, when I walk into our worship center, people say, why did you make it so high? I mean, I don't know. It's not necessarily a great thing for acoustics to have a building that's so tall. But I'll tell you this, it does give us a sense of the vastness of our God and the greatness of the expanse of his love. And maybe this time away from the building, I said it last night, maybe this time away from the building will make our hearts grow fonder for God and for worship. But in heaven, he says there's no temple. He says there's no light for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is the lamp. And what will we do in heaven? Here's the final question. What will we do in heaven all the time? And he says, we will reverence God as his servants. We will serve him. Literally, the word is worship him, not liturgio, the liturgia, the work of the people, not um, proscuneo, to fall on our face before him. No, that's not the word. The word is we will serve him. I remember a song we sang when I was a kid in worship, uh, serve the Lord with gladness. And it's just joyfully serving God. And that too is worship. We will worship and we will work. And um, I know when I was a kid, preachers used to scare me. They'd say, you're going to love heaven. It's going to be one endless worship service. And I thought that they may have kept some people out of heaven by preaching that way. Because to me, as a little boy fidgeting and waiting for the service to be over, I'm sure this happens at Tallowood every week, I would think, I don't want to be in one long worship service forever. But don't think of it that way. Think of it this way. 
Everything we do in heaven will be worship. We will walk and we'll be worshiping. We will talk and we will be worshiping. We will go. We will be worshiping and we God's servants will recognize him. And what does God look like? Someday we'll know. So we're going to see him face to face. And the beauty of this picture of heaven is how relational it is. We'll know God. We'll know each other. Number one question people ask me about heaven. Will we know each other? Here's your answer. Yes, we will know each other so well that we will wonder if we ever knew each other here at all, because it's going to be so much better. Imagine knowing each other perfectly, knowing and not offending and not hurting each other and not saying the wrong thing because we just don't know the other person that well. No, we will know each other perfectly. How do I know that? Because in 1 Corinthians 13, we will know as we are known. How does God know us perfectly? How will we know each other in heaven perfectly? We will We will reverence him in worship. We will recognize him. We will see God's face. Remember Moses saying, I just want to see your face. Paul gets that beatific vision. John sees Jesus walking among the lampstand with his hair like white as snow and his eyes like fire. He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus in all of his glory, but we too will be glorified And finally, our eyes will be able. Remember when there was an eclipse a few years ago and they said, don't look straight at it. It'll hurt your eyes. And I suppose if you and I, with our human eyes as they are now, could look at God, it might be so bright that it would it would burn our retina, the retinas in our eyes. But imagine this in glorified bodies, we'll be able to see him as he is, as he sees us. And we, God's servants, will reign with him, not only will we serve him, but we will reign with him. The word is Basalain. Basaluo is it? Basaluo is a king. Uh, Basaliah is a kingdom. And in this sense, he says, we will, he makes it a verb, we will reign with him. And I think about Easter Sundays when we sing uh, that great, great Handel's Messiah, Hallelujah chorus in that line, and we shall reign forever and ever. It comes right from this, this picture of the new heavens and new earth, straight out of Isaiah 65 in the Old Testament, and now we've memorialized it. And the promise is Romans 8, 17, if we're children, then we're heirs. If we're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, joint heirs of Jesus, if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. So we sing at Easter time, soar we now where Christ has led. Alleluia. Following our exalted head. Alleluia. Made like him, like him we rise. Alleluia. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. This is the promise. C.S. Lewis captures it, I think, in the little book, The Last Battle, in that Narnia series that so many of our young families have come to love through the years. And I'm going to read it to my granddaughter, Josie, I promise you. But C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle and my new granddaughter who's coming, Normandy, both of them. C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle. This is what he says at the end of the story. He says, all their life in this world and all of their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now, I want you to think of that image for a moment. So think about it. We think if we live 70 years or 60 years or 90 years or 100 years, that that's what life is all about. And, and C.S. Lewis says, when we get to the end of the story, when we get to heaven, we'll realize everything that we've lived here, it's just the cover of the book. If our life is a book, it's just the title page 
of the book. And then the, he says this. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever. And listen to this in which every chapter is better than the one before. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. And in that year when I first discovered death, when my grandmother died and and my father was in Thailand and I've told you this story, there came a moment when my mom told me one night, she said, your dad's coming home from Thailand. And I said, when? I can't wait to see him. And she said, no, you'll, you'll see him in the morning. And I said, but I want to see him now. And she said, no, you go lie down. And she had these little pallets because all our family was in town for the funeral and all of that. And she said, you go lie down on your pallet in the morning when you wake up, your dad's going to be here. But I couldn't sleep. And during the night, I remember rolling and tossing and turning. It was like Christmas. I just couldn't go to sleep because I couldn't wait for morning to come. And then during the middle of the night, my mom and my uncle had gone to pick my dad up in, in that Ford Fairlane and they had gone to pick him up and at the airport and they had driven him back to Rolla, Missouri. And, and during the night, I remember hearing the car pull up in the driveway. I, <laughs> I remember the sound of the doors closing. I can remember the click of my dad's Air Force dress shoes walking up the sidewalk. It's crazy, but I can remember the crunch of the key going in the door. And I looked across the room wide eyed in wonder as the doorknob turned and the door swung open and silhouetted against the, the porch light there. My father's massive frame, broad at the shoulders, narrow at the hip. My father walked in that door uh, with his size 14 ring that he wears on his finger, this massive, powerful man. And here I am five years old and I can't wait till morning to see my dad. So I run across the room and he sweeps me up in his arms. I'm the first of the three sons at that time to get to get a big bear hug from our dad. And I remember for the first time in a year since he had gone away that I knew that things were going to be okay. Hey, this is a scary time. And we're facing death. Paul's words, we feel like sheep going to the slaughter uh, all day long. We, we're, uh, we're facing death. But Paul ends that great Romans chapter 8 by saying, No, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in that moment, when my dad swept me up in his arms, it gave me a picture. I didn't go to Thailand to find him. He came to me. And in the same way, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And here's the beauty. Someday, it's not just that we're going to go up to heaven, but someday heaven's going to come down to earth. We can't build our way up to him, but God will come down to us. And it will never end. We will live with him forever and ever. Won't that be glory? Oh, that will be glory for me. When by his grace, we all shall look on his face that will be glory. This is the consummation of our salvation. Let us not neglect so great a salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for the hope we find in your word. Help us, I pray, Lord, to live what we believe so that we'll always be ready to give an answer to those who are asking us the reason for the hope that is in us. Our hope is not just a possibility. It's not just a probability. It's a certainty. It's a confident expectation. And I pray, Lord, that the people in our city, the people in our country, the people in our world will be able to recognize the Christians, not because we argue with them about the Bible, but because we live with hope, the hope of the consummation of our glorious salvation. God, make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.